This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a very interesting and not quite as controversial as uh, his reputation uh, makes out. Uh, Ryan Holiday is the author of really a, a, a very fascinating book about the entire Hulk Hogan, Peter Thiel, Gawker litigation called Conspiracy. He has really a fascinating, amazing background. I wish I had another hour because I had so many more questions. I'm a big fan of Robert Greene. He was a research assistant for him, uh, who wrote the books on power laws. I didn't get a chance to, to talk about that. But we really delved into what's going on with the media, the whole problem with digital marketing, blogging, um, all of the sort of uh, click-happy social media, uh, the filter bubbles that have been created by Facebook and Google and Twitter. Um, it really is an interesting question. He has quite an amazing story, drops out of school very young, eventually gets a gig at American Apparel. I think he's 20 when he becomes their head of PR. And here it is, barely uh, a decade and change later, and he's five books or six books published, some of which have become extremely successful bestsellers. Uh, Just really an unusual, interesting, fascinating history for a writer. Uh, I found the conversation quite intriguing, and I think you will also. So with no further ado, my conversation with Ryan Holiday. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Ryan Holiday. He is an American author, marketer, and entrepreneur. He is the former director of PR for American Apparel. He is a media strategist and columnist and the former editor-at-large for the New York Observer. At the young age of barely 30, he is the author of multiple books, including Trust Me, I'm Lying, The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, Growth Hacker Marketing, The Daily Stoic, and his most recent book is Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue. Ryan Holiday, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me. So we kind of threw this together pretty quickly. As soon as I saw the book was published, I've been fascinated by this entire tawdry episode the new book is a, a inside look at the Gawker trial, um, which we learned was backed by Peter Thiel. This is so different than everything else you've written. What what attracted you to this this subject matter? I, I had the same reaction to the story. I mean, it 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 feels like it's something that should have happened in the 19th century. It's what a it's what Vanderbilt or Rockefeller or Carnegie would have done to an enemy. The idea of this billionaire. Uh, having this uh, personal grudge for good reasons or bad reasons mm-hmm. against a media outlet, and then plotting uh, secretly in the shadows to to destroy them sounds epic. In fact, it's not even the 19th century. It's Shakespeare or Plutarch right. or something. The Spanish-American War, yellow journalism, all that sort of, of behind-the-scenes manipulation. Yeah. The, the most fascinating thing is you had written a couple of uh, columns on Gawker and Thiel for The Observer. Yeah. After this whole thing goes down, both Nick Denton, the yeah. founder of Gawker, and Peter Thiel, separately and unaware of the other, reach out to you to tell their side of the story. What what was that like? It, it was surreal. I mean, there was one night at the end of 2016 where I had dinner at Peter Thiel's house, and then the next night I had... Uh, uh, I went to an event at at Denton's house, and it struck me that I was probably the only person speaking to these two mortal enemies. These two people had spent north of $20 million fighting each other, that embarrassed each other in the press. Nick Nick had only recently moved back into his apartment, having had to rent it out on Airbnb to cover the mortgage during his bankruptcy when all his assets had been frozen. And and to bring everybody up to speed— Thiel wins a giant case, or I should say Hulk Hogan in in the guise of his Mm -hmm. real-life persona, wins a hundred-plus-million-dollar litigation. It's it's bankrolled by Peter Thiel. It ultimately bankrupts Gawker and forces Nick Denton, the founder and and 
sole owner or majority owner of, of Gawker, yeah. into personal bankruptcy. So these aren't people just having a, a Twitter battle. Right. These are really people at each other's throats. No, I mean, this is an epic conflict. It, it begins in 2007 when, uh, at, at Nick's prompting, Gawker outs Teal as gay. Uh, he, so he, back up a sec. So Gawker Properties owns Valleywag, yes. which was the They're Silicon sort of Valley farm. version of uh, a gossip. So- yeah. Gawker started at sort of like a, a page six with no limitations, a high-hitting, hard-hitting. Yeah. In, in the way that you would need to be a celebrity to be on TM, uh, to be on TMZ or page six, Gawker said anyone doing something tawdry or provocative or unusual uh, or that has a secret of some kind is a potential sort of subject for one of our stories. And so, so, so 2007, what was the title of the post that had come out in Valley Wag? Peter Thiel is totally gay, people. And I think that in one, there's a, a, an early Gawker memo that said every post should have a glint of meanness. Nastiness, think, right. Yeah, I and, read that. And I think that— I read that in your book. That, that headline perfectly encapsulates that. It's, it's, it's not just that you're taking a, a, a relatively private figure, someone who is certainly a, a well-known investor, but just because you're an investor doesn't mean people g- right. get to know who you have sex with or not. Right. Um, and, but wasn't—by the way, let me interrupt you here— wasn't it the worst kept secret in the world? I mean, it, it wasn't that he was closeted. People knew. In fact, the author of that post was gay, and he said half of San Francisco knew Peter Thiel was gay. Yeah, that, that that's what they claim. I think Peter would say, you know, my parents knew, my close colleagues knew, the people I went to college with knew, perhaps. But that doesn't mean that uh, it should be broadcast to an audience of potentially millions of people. Do you Is, know what I mean? Isn't that sort of an odd distinction? Because... If someone outs someone who's closeted, that's a terrible violation. Anybody who is gay should feel free to out themselves at a time of their own choosing. But what I find fascinating is this epic battle is started by not even taking something that was private and making public, but taking something that was known but not publicized and saying, we're going to take this and spread it around a little bit and put a little gawker stink on it. Well, let's say uh, that you and your wife have an open marriage. Mm-hmm. Obviously, some people would know by definition of it being open. Ha- have you heard anything? <laughs> yeah. What am I missing? Let's say I had heard something. Does yeah. that mean... Uh, at, at what point do you become a fully public figure the way a president right. or a celebrity or a rock star is a fully public person? And at what point are you sort of on the fringes? And and so I think I think there's some argument over whether it should be private or shouldn't be private. But what I think there's less argument of is, this, is the sensitivity with which such a subject is treated, right? Mm-hmm. So he, he gets blindsided by this article. And, it, and to some respects, in some respects, it doesn't actually matter whether he should have been outed or not. What mattered is that he felt that it was a grave violation, right? It's like, uh, it doesn't matter if the Count of Monte Cristo actually was wronged. What matters (laughs) is that he's stewing in prison about it. So let's ask the question, is Peter Thiel thin-skinned? Should he have let this be, the expression I grew up with was water off a duck's, let's call it back? Or, Or was this a real slight that warranted this sort of because it seems like someone shot him with a pea shooter, yeah. and he took a bazooka and fired back. Well, we got to go back into time a little bit and think about, you know, in 2007, Obama hasn't even come out in favor right. of gay marriage. So it, it is a different issue at For that sure. time. And I, I think he had his own complicated relationship with his own sexuality. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's, a, he's conservative. He, he's, he's private. I think he wrestled with that. I think really what it was is that this is his rude awakening, his rude introduction into this media outlet that operates with the glint of meanness, that says the things that other people can't say, right? That that uh, that sort of attacks, publishes first, and verifies second. And and you got to remember, he doesn't really actively begin to plot against Gawker until probably around 2011. So it's really this thing that's just sort of bouncing around in his head and he's- Gestating for four years. He's a, he's seeing things they're writing about other people. He's seeing them write about his businesses. He's seeing them write about complete strangers who did nothing wrong. And it's, it's as you said, it's, gest, it's gestating and it's growing and it's this thing that he can't stop thinking about. And that's really where this conspiracy is born out of. Let's talk a little bit about the person- 
who planted the seed in the mind of Peter that there was an opportunity to uh, seek his revenge against Nick Denton and Gawker by exploring the possibility of uh, funding litigation against them. So how who is Mr. A and how did he hatch up this whole crazy conspiracy? So in April of 2011, Peter meets with this young, recent college graduate in, in Berlin. And this is sort of his MO. He looks for talented young people, people he's going to invest in, people he's going to place at his startups. The PayPal mafia, which we now see as sort of the, one of the most powerful networks of investors probably mm. in history, originates because of this habit from Thiel. And so he, he meets with, with this young man. Uh, I refer to him as Mr. A. Um, I, I know the identity of the source, but my agreement with the source is that I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, unmask him. But uh, he, they meet, and they're talking about Gawker, and, and Teal is complaining, and they're, t- they're talking about this unfair coverage. And Peter says, you know, but of course, there's nothing you can do about it. And Mr. A looks Teal in the eye. It's, it's remarkable that he would have the, the stones to do this. Right. And he says, you know, Peter, what would the world look like if if everyone thought that way? And this is like the perfect thing you could say to provoke Peter into doing something. Right. And then he goes into this pitch. He says, "Look, I think I think buried within Gawker's archives is a number of uh, posts that would be uh, a violation of some law, or civil or 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 criminal in one way or another. I think if you f- if you put up the money and the time and the resources, we could." pursue causes of action in those instances and eventually be able to hold them accountable. What they did to you, outing you, is not illegal, or at least it's on the line, but they may have gone way over the line in other cases. And so they, Peter agrees in this meeting to, to budget $10 million on this completely insane project. Right. That ultimately culminates in a hundred and forty million dollar judgment in, in Gawker's so, bankruptcy. So good ROI on that investment, yes. at least from a venture capital perspective. Uh-huh. Uh, and at the time, just to put ten million dollars, which sounds like a lot of money, yeah. into perspective, he's worth. He he's one of the early investors in Facebook. He's yeah. been extremely successful as a VC. Not just PayPal, but Facebook, and and go down a long list of sure. successful investments. I believe it, at the time Facebook was about a billion dollar holding for him. I don't know if he was still holding all of it, but yeah, Facebook is going to IPO about one year later, mm-hmm. and he's going to own ten percent of it at the IPO. That's so unbelievable. It, 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 this is a fraction of his net worth. Uh, this is you know chump change. But it is also objectively a, way more money than anyone has ever spent on something like this before. The the assumption is, hey, if you had ten million dollars to burn through, yeah, could you find a more productive usage for it, or is it just simply self indulgent revenge? Well, that that is that is the question. But Peter has come to say that he believes this is the most philanthropic thing he's <laughs> ever done. Uh, his, his point was he, he believes that we've sort of accepted this idea of technological determinism, right? Blogging is invented. Gawker is a, uh, Gawker is an outgrowth of that of that uh, that technology, and then we're as a society just sort of a slave to whatever this thing does, right? Coarser, cruder, much less genteel because of. No holds barred. And you could argue we have the same attitude towards our cell phones, towards Facebook, towards Twitter. Right. Like, oh, this is what it is, right? It was invented. We, this is, and and Peter, Peter sort of rejected that idea. And he, he uh-huh. thought that Gawker was this sort of representation of everything he felt was wrong with the media. And that if you could do something about it, if you could hold them accountable in court or you could, you could like, wipe them off the face of the earth, that it would actually change the direction of culture. I think this is what so so it's ideological in addition to being deeply personal right. and and sort of revenge based, right? I, it's I, it's this complicated mix of motivations. And and we should never underestimate the ability of of ideologues to rationalize any behavior in furtherance of the cause. Well and probably never underestimate the ability of extremely wealthy people to rationalize whatever their preference is as being part of the greater good. So let's let's discuss the pushback to that. Some people have looked at this and said, hey, it's concerning that an angry billionaire has the ability to effectively close down a media outlet. Are we going to now have to start treating the 0.01% and 0.001% with kid gloves? Isn't this a, a direct contradiction of the First Amendment and a robust free press in a democracy? So 
what Peter would say is that this case had absolutely nothing to do with the First Amendment. This was an invasion of privacy claim. And in fact, when they when he sits down with Mr. A and then ultimately Charles Harder, the lawyer that they, they hire to litigate these cases, they are specifically looking for cases that are not libel and defamation. Mm-hmm. They are looking for copyright violations, uh, 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 violations of, of federal trade laws, violations of uh, you know individual privacy, that, and so the reason they end up suing Gawker in Florida uh, is is that the there running a sex tape of of an individual is is of uh, a, a, a very sort of specific violation there uh, that that they can ultimately be held accountable for. So they picked Florida because of the state laws. What, was anybody related in Florida? Anybody? Well, H- Hogan lives there, and that's oh, where the Terry- tape is. Now, what is his his Terry Balea? Terry Balea. So one of the things that strikes me about the book, and I I was talking to you offline saying, I didn't expect to like it, but I'm really enjoying it. And kudos to you, it's really well written. Thank you, thank you. Um, Having only read uh, the Daily Stoic previously, I was not expecting this. But one of the things that struck me is everybody involved is just a wholly unsympathetic character. You you may be impressed with their intellect, but Everybody here is a bad actor in some way, and yet it's kind of a compelling narrative. Well, I think it's extremely compelling, just it, and almost unbelievable what actually happened. You know, it's these two Florida DJs and a professional wrestler, and somehow Donald Trump ends up entering the story at the very end. How right? did the DJs not get tagged? Because they literally stole they private it, property. Right. And then released it, you would think their liability is on them as much as anybody. Well, I mean, one of the weird arguments, and this is where it gets so sort of conspiracy theory-esque, is that the FBI investigates the the person who stole the tape and the lawyer who was brokering the tape, decide, declines to prosecute despite having overwhelming evidence. And then that lawyer is the same lawyer who now represents those two porn stars who are accused of of brokering secret deals with Donald Trump in the in the two, at the end of the 2016 campaign. So the whole story is insane. But I think part of that the sordidness and uh-huh. the 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 quickness with which you want to judge the person who you disagree with most it has has actually blinded people to what happened. And I think one of the reasons one of the reasons I wanted to write this story and why I was so focused on it is that. Beneath all that, there is a level of sort of extreme competence and ruthlessness and effectiveness. It's a triumph of planning and organization that he did this thing that everyone thought was impossible right underneath the noses of everyone who was supposed to be looking into it. And 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 I think we've got to first understand exactly what happened before we make those judgments. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the media has done a poor job covering this story because they're either obsessed with the sensational aspects or they're so self-interested and afraid that this could happen to them. The fact that, for, for instance, I'm the first person to report on the existence of Mr. A, not his name, but that he even existed in one of the most covered stories in the history of media is in some ways incredibly alarming it's like the media was so quick to jump to conclusions they thought peter Thiel was the personally you know reviewing legal briefs in the in the case which is absurd and so i want i want to we've got to understand how power works because i think this is indicative or perhaps a, a a sign of what's to come now that Silicon Valley is, in some ways, the the power center of the entire planet. Hmm. We were discussing earlier the role of the media in this book and how they really kind of dropped the ball. It, it, it seemed that the more salacious aspects led to very sensational coverage. Tell us about how Mr. A came about in your, your understanding of, of how this whole affair unrolled. I remember I was first interviewing... Peter and he mentioned, you know, I was like, "How did you get this idea?" And he says, "Oh, well, I was in this meeting and this, you know, this person." And I was, "What? There, there's someone other than you involved in this? This is uh, unbelievable." Nobody had reported about it. Nobody had said. No. Not until after the book came out. I think BuzzFeed outed Mr. A. And I know you're not allowed to confirm or deny. Yes. But if you Google the book and BuzzFeed, you could get at least one person's best guess. Right. And and. And that and that story only breaks because my the pending release of the book, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it is it is incredible that this man's identity was able not again not just his 
his actual name, his legal name, but that his the role, his, the, the role the, entirely that whole episode. And and in fact, that was what allowed the conspiracy to be so successful. Is that there was a, a le- you know three levels or three layers removed between Peter and Hulk Hogan, and and that was able to separate these things. You know, I think Peter said to me one time when, we, when I was asking him, he said, you know, I think what was so incredible to me, he's like, I was so paranoid people were you know, right about to discover us. And then he said, in retrospect, I realized they weren't even thinking about was, it. Wasn't even looking for it. And, and he said this about his investment strategies. He says, it's not so much that people often think that I'm wrong about one of his big contrarian bets. It's that they're not thinking about it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, That's fascinating. And those are the opportunities that he actually looks for. And I think the media, even after this, even after his identity and Mr. A's identity is broken, again is so focused on you know what this means for their business right. rather than communicating facts to the public. Um, you know uh, th- that again we sort of get this weird sell this media bubble around these really important issues. And I think this applies as much to the coverage of this case as the coverage of Donald Trump or the coverage of any sort of controversial thing. We we we're told why we should be outraged but we're not really fully explained to what the thing is what the facts are and this mm. is a weird filter bubble that we're in so let let's talk a little bit about your background and how you ended up becoming uh this media scourge you drop out of college to take a job at a hollywood talent agency uh-huh. uh, that sounds like a risky plan what what were you thinking at the time Oh, that was the question my parents, of course, <laughs> asked at the time. I, I I felt like this was, you know, this is 2007, sort of media is in this, uh, media and, and technology and culture is in this weird shift. We're embracing all these new trends. And I just thought, why would I stay in school when I have the chance to sort of do things in the real world, right? Like, why would I stay in school and then hopefully read about the things that I was going to be doing rather than, you know, actually going out and doing them? And so... I sort of got a you know a jump on people of my age group. I you know I skipped two years of waiting in line essentially, mm-hmm. and and I happened to end up working for a number of really controversial clients. And I think it sort of showed me, oh wait, this is how the sausage gets made mm-hmm. on sort of it, on the marketing side, on the news side, and then my first book ended up being this kind of expose of that, uh, which was very controversial at the time, and then ironically. You know, given that I wrote this book about fake news, was probably five or so years early to the entire trend. You know all about fake Twitter accounts and media controversies. So since you wrote that book, how many years ago? It's almost a decade ago. I, it came out in 2012. Okay, so six years ago, seven years ago, uh, fake news has become a presidential utterance all the time. Yeah. Uh, Facebook. Google search, Twitter, there are all sorts of these accusations that not just the mainstream media, but the technology aspect of that completely dropped the ball on this. How has the entire media landscape changed society, and what does this mean for us in a democracy? Well, you could almost argue that it's sort of an equivalent to the financial industry and that, that, you know, uh, the financial crisis, there had been a number of warnings. There was sort of the writing on the wall. There were these people who were pointing out problems and and they sort of, you know, greed and self-interest sort of motivates people to sort of push past that. And then you get this sort of catastrophic failure. I think in, in, in media, we've had a similar situation in which the incentives were toxic uh, and complicated. They, you know, the idea of paying people by the page view, the idea mm-hmm. of, of sort of most of the news being filtered through these social networks where they have to either go viral and if they're not, then no one sees them. These incentives were were there and they were brewing. And, you know, I wrote about it and many other people were like, look, this is dangerous. Some This is ripe for manipulation. Not only is this rife with mis- manipulation, it's ripe for very serious manipulation. And they sort of slept, walked on and, and you know, Russia and you could argue Donald Trump and, and other people sort of figured out the loopholes in that system or the, the weak points and they've hit them so many times. Uh, that 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 now we're where we are, you know, whether it's uh, tens of thousands of fake accounts by Russian bots or whether it's Donald Trump getting two billion dollars worth of free publicity mm-hmm. by sort of leveraging this constant controversy and outrage. 
And then we wonder why we're in the situation we're in. There's this old quote from a media critic, and he says, you know, America is a country governed by public opinion. So what governs public opinion governs the, governs the country. Mm-hmm. In, in, the 19, uh, in the early 1900s when he said this, it was newspapers, but now it's blogs and social media and, and, and this sort of online journalism. So let's talk a little bit about blogs. You, you wrote, the business model for blogs encourages publishers and writers to value the click above other potential goals like truth, accuracy, and fairness. So once that toothpaste is out of the tube, is there any putting it back? Or are we just stuck with this somewhat reckless, not quite mainstream form of, of media? I think we're stuck in some ways, although there there is some you know things to be optimistic to. I think, for instance, one of the reasons we're seeing this massive uh, sort of land rush in podcasts mm-hmm. is because podcasts aren't subject to those same toxic economics, right? A podcast That's is a self-contained unit. It's long. It's deep. It's thoughtful. There's no viral headline that makes people share it. It's you subscribe to this podcast and you listen to it and you have this relationship with the host and they have a reputation to uphold. That's very different than uh, the Huffington Post trying to churn out as many articles as they can per day to get you to click on one thing. And whether they burn you, they don't care because they know in six months they'll get you on another one. Right. I and, was going to call this Ryan Holiday's sex tape escapade. Sure. But you're telling me that's just that, too clicky and not not what my re- listeners want to hear. I imagine for the most part the titles have very little impact on whether uh, uh, the 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 difference between your right. episodes probably has more to do with the guest than right. the provocative nature of the headline right 100 it's, it's, the, it's the quality of the content but that doesn't exist in web or print based media well i do think you're starting to see some improvements with paywalls for instance like if you think about the i, I write about this and trust me i'm lying tyler cowan uh, the, the brilliant economist is writes for bloomberg View. yeah he's he's the best he was saying you know what are the what's the economics of a of of a paywall. It's saying, okay, the first five articles are free. The first 10 articles are free and everything else you have to pay. So now their incentive is to write at least 11 <laughs> payworthy articles, right? right. They, they've got to get you... That's very different than I've got to write as many articles as I can to trick you into reading to get... a a half penny of advertising revenue each time. And right? some of the kids at Gawkers, and they were kids, were doing eight, ten posts a day, yeah. seven days a week. It sounded like a relentless grind. It, I mean, it, it, it's a digital sweatshop in some mm-hmm. ways. And, and you know, for instance... There's you, the headline. You would, never, you would never want a Bloomberg reporter to be writing about a stock that they own, right? right? That would be a conflict of interest. For sure. But what if the Bloomberg reporter is paid, and this is how it was at Gawker, and it is still at many blogs, what if you're paid based on how many views your article does, mm-hmm. right? Now your stock is the content, right? So you're not gonna you're not gonna write a complicated, nuanced piece without a strong conclusion. You're gonna say uh, you're gonna simplify that issue. You're gonna try to make it as provocative or incendiary as possible because these are the emotions that drive that kind of virality. And so the conflict of interest isn't in one stock. It isn't that they're writing about Google. It's that they want to slam Google or they want to praise Google because that's where the traffic is. And that's just as manipulative. Let's talk a little bit about what you've done outside of of writing books. And I, I definitely want to get back to the Daily Stoic. But I have to ask you about American Apparel. You're a young kid. You're like 19 or 20. You yeah. just dropped out of college. How on earth do you get hired as the head of PR for them while they're right in the middle of a sexual harassment scandal with their founder, Dove Charney, and all sorts of other things? They had a very salacious advertising campaign. No one was really surprised by this. The, the, the timeline there, is, it's, a, it's a bit confusing, but uh, I, you know, I got hired as sort of a consultant early on. Uh, I, I was friends with uh, someone who's on the board of directors, uh, mm-hmm. the author Robert Greene. And I come in as a consultant, then I start cleaning stuff up, organizing uh, you know, the, the way the marketing efforts are done. There was no marketing department. I put one together, and then I'm in charge of that. <laughs> and then you know, one publicity scandal after another. Uh, it, was, it was an exhausting, chaotic company, I'll put it that way. But it was also sort of a crash course, both not, in, not just in corporate PR and strategy and all these things, but also in just seeing how these scandals are reported by the media, where there might be a lot of truth to, 
to them, but that doesn't mean the reporting about them is necessarily accurate, right? And so there was, and Gawker was a company that covered American Apparel all the time. So I, I, I got to really see how that sausage was made, and it made me, uh, you know, not want to eat any. So, so the company eventually files for bankruptcy. They went through reorganization. Uh, the founder, Dove Charney, gets forced out. Uh, the company now has an all-woman board of directors. So what was that place like to work in? Was it as insane as it appeared from the outside, or was that just an image? I would say it was both less insane and more insane, right? It wasn't yeah. the Playboy Mansion, right. uh, but it was chaotic and dysfunctional, and, and, and oftentimes sort of startups that are still run by the person who found them right. are are that way, right? Uh, oftentimes the genius of the creator is also their biggest weakness. Sure. And I think that's a good way to encapsulate what was, what was wrong at American Apparel. So you effectively get a crash course in the art of manipulating the media. How on earth did, did you find your way to that? And did you successfully help keep the company alive for long enough so that they could go through this reorg bankruptcy. Well, it's a it's a really sad story in the sense that it was a company once worth a billion dollars and, and it was a great idea, yeah. hey, sweatshop free uh, apparel. Yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, we sold millions, hundreds of millions of garments. Uh, we had 12,000 employees, we had stores in 20 countries. Wow. To me, it's evident you can have the best idea in the world. You can totally resonate with your company, uh, with your customers. But if you don't manage yourself well, if you're not right. disciplined and organized, if you don't bring in that adult supervision, right. it doesn't matter. Execution so, is everything. Yeah, and, and so it, it sort of tore itself apart, uh, mm -hmm. both with scandals. But uh, you know, companies can survive scandals. What they can't uh, survive is bad management. And I think that's ultimately what happened there. So you write a book after this called Trust Me, I'm Lying. Yeah. Which in it, I love the title. So, are you lying? Why should people trust you? You you raise the question yourself. Well, yeah, trust me, I'm lying is the liar's paradox. If mm -hmm. someone tells you you're lying, can you believe them? Uh, and my answer to that is, you know, if I was intending to manipulate people, I probably wouldn't write a book where I gave away exactly how all this works. You know, the, that's first level thinking. Second <laughs> level thinking is, oh, I'm going to show them so nobody really believes this. The the idea for I thought I was look, I, I I sort of had grown disillusioned and disgusted with how all this worked, and and I had this sort of premonition that some. Manipulating the media to sell T-shirts is not the world's worst sin, right. right? But I had this sense that the same things could be done for much more ominous ends. And uh -huh. that's really why I wrote the book. And I think that's ultimately why it resonated, why it's taught in all these journalism schools. Uh, and and the sad part was that people who really needed to listen to it didn't listen to it and they didn't wake up to the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the exposure there until basically after Donald Trump was elected. And, and then they said, oh, wait, this is real serious. There's real cost to this. So I can't tell if this Times review is a compliment or a slight. Quote, he is like a snake oil salesman who swears he has abandoned the snake oil, but not the highly effective snake oil sales tactics. So how do you respond to something like that? First of all, is that a compliment or is that a... Uh uh, a dig on you. Well, that's sort of your typical Times sort of looking down their nose at uh -huh. you and... and uh, Overall, that article was not a bad piece of PR. No, but you know, profiles are filled with these sort of subtle digs right. that get you to that that you walk away thinking that obviously the writer is superior to the person that they're writing about, and there's a little bit of of that in the piece, which Isn't goes the with the territory. Right, that's the nature of all criticism and reviews. Yeah, right. It, you you can't you don't outwardly attack them; you undermine them with the anecdotal details. Right. right. Um, but I I think. Uh, I, I don't I don't think it's snake oil tactics. I mean, uh, the the you write a book, you have an idea, you have something you have to get out in the world. If you don't sell it, how will anyone ever find out about it? And I think that's there. The, you know, you could say that the shelves grown under the weight of undiscovered brilliant books. Uh -huh. And I think what I bring to my writing is stuff that resonates with people. The vast majority of my sales sales come from word of mouth. Right. But I also know how to how to create a stir around that book when it comes out and and to and to get a discussion going which is what the job of an author is. So uh, conspiracy uh, you know it's going to sell itself given the content the details and a lot of the never before discovered details the daily stoic about a 2000 year old philosophy. Yeah. I have to pivot and ask you a what motivated you to write this and b 
how does such a what sounds like a dry I mean I found the book because in college I studied a lot of philosophy and I'm fascinated by a ton of people from Marcus Aurelius go down the list sure me too. so th- this was one of those things it's like oh that's a surprising title let's let's try that how did this become such a, a, a fireball in Silicon Valley well I you know I fell in love with stoicism when I was in college it was it was the it was like oh wait this is how you're supposed to live right, right? and and I would say it was very helpful amidst the chaos of American apparel not wanting to get implicated in it and sucked into it so so lay out for for people who may not be philosophy majors lay out the details in a few bullet points sure. of what stoicism is about what's well, a philosophy of sort of inner strength and discipline it holds that sort of virtue and uh, and and constancy are the highest goods. And then I think my, my sort of definition to it, to lay people, is like a Stoic says, you don't control the world around you, but you always control how you respond. That's right. And you got to respond well, and that you, you see everything, good and bad, as this sort of opportunity for that response. Right. You can't make it stop raining, but you can remember to bring an umbrella is really the oversimplified version. Yeah. That, Which that, people, that's exactly by the way, right. find hard to grasp sometimes right and and you know most of what was happening at american apparel was outside my control but Mm -hmm. i did control you know the direction of my own career the direction of my own life the decisions i was going to make personally right and what i was going to learn from what was happening and all these things did did the resonance in silicon valley come as any sort of surprise to you i mean it really seemed to have caught on there The Silicon Valley resonance surprised me a lot less than its resonance in professional sports. I mean, there are dozens of major league franchises in every sport that that read the Daily Stoic on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. There's politicians that read it in the Senate dining room. It's been this very absurd sort of surreal experience. And so when people, you know, talk to me about my controversial books, it's it's always I I sort of smile and laugh because they've sold a fraction of. of the copies that my serious books on Stoic philosophy have sold and, and the impact. And none of those people care who I am, and those books have essentially marketed themselves. I, I'm one of those people who I had no idea you had authored this book until I started researching conspiracy. And I'm like, wait a second. I have not one but two copies. I have one in the office and one at home. You're telling me the guy who wrote conspiracy wrote this? All right, now I'm intrigued by this person as an author because— these two books could not be further apart in terms of subject matter. And and Peter Thiel could have used a little stoicism in his life. And, and certainly Nick Denton. As actually, well. t- Nick Denton uh, is, a, is a fan of the Daily Stoic as well. And that's one of the things we connected over. Because th- that's... That's what you turn to when you're forced into personal bankruptcy right. by a secret vendetta from a person you didn't even know you'd upset, right? <laughs> um, but but you know it's it's weird too. I, and I remember talking about it with that New York Times reporter you were mentioning. You know, I, I was saying like, look, I'm I'm a good marketer. I can sell anything. Why would I have chosen a two thousand year old philosophy <laughs> right. that that has the sort of stereo, you know, emotionless, uh, dry? Uh, without joy, why would I have chosen Stoicism unless that's what I'm actually interested in? Unless I really felt like it could make a difference. I'd, if 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 I was financially motivated, I'd be working in cryptocurrencies right. or you know, th- there's any no- something a little hotter than than Stoicism. Right, right, and 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 it really is something that has been deeply impactful in my life. That's helped me through my own sort of difficult circumstances, and 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 something I I, I felt like was worthy of. You know, sort of making my my life's work. And so is is it true done. you read uh, the meditations four times in a row as a college student, or is that just? A, it would a have rumor? been. Uh, I mean, four times in a row is probably an understatement. I've probably read that book, you know, two hundred times. Really? Yeah. Wow, that that's fascinating. We have been speaking to Ryan Holiday, author most recently of Conspiracy and previously of The Daily Stoic. If you enjoy these conversations, be sure and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue to discuss all things conspiracy-related. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, Bloomberg, SoundCloud, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz, I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks this, for having me. You know, a uh, little inside baseball. Um, I prepare these daily reads for Bloomberg every day, and as I'm... And always, as soon as I hit send, 20 minutes later, I find something interesting. And I find uh, Derek Thompson yeah. uh, of The Atlantic, uh, who wrote the book, um, I want to say Hitmakers. Hitmakers, right? Who was wonderful a previous, book. Yeah, wonderful. He's a previous guest of the show. I find his conversation with you, and I'm like, oh my God, this is so much more interesting than I ever expected conspiracy to be. There's so many questions we didn't get to. Okay. I, I have to give you a few quotes of yours and have you... Push back All right. on them. Blogging is a digital blood sport. Explain. Well, it's not just uh, this sort of battle inside a company for clicks, right? Who, who's the best writer? Who's getting the best scoops? Uh, it's it's this it's this intense battle between journalists at all these different outlets. You got to be first. You got to you got to uh, brand your story the best. You got to have the best headline. All these news sources are competing with each other for a finite amount of attention. So it's a blood sport that way. Mm -hmm. But then also we could say we take a as a as the the viewing public we take a great deal of pleasure in watching people, if particularly well known people get torn apart. So it's this blood sport, I think, in both directions. Isn't the history of that sort of tabloid journalism and that really gossipy celebrity rag type of approach to, to media, has that been around for forever? Yeah, I think Oscar Wilde said, we used to have the rack and now we have the press. <laughs> That's how we used to torture people and now we do it, uh, you know, now we do it digitally. Um, so so I think it's just a, an, an escalation or a, a, a growth and a trend that's always been there. Another quote, and this one was from Trust Me, I'm Lying. My job was so easy that it scared me. Yes. And you're obviously referring to the media and your ability to manage the coverage they were doing. Ex explain why it scared you. I'll, I'll give you an example. When I was putting out Trust Me, I'm Lying, um, I thought, uh, what can I do that sort of proves this book, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I put out a press release where I announced the size of the advance, which I doubled, uh, Wait. So let me. Let's. So you claimed a two hundred and fifty advance. No, I, I claimed a two hundred and fifty advance was a five hundred thousand dollars advance because nobody fact checks press releases. Wait. Right? So so it was a two hundred and fifty. You claimed five hundred. Yes. And people bought it. It immediately picked up. And no that one became no one, tremendous amount of buzz about right. The book. How, where is this? Who is this person? How do you just get a half a million? Nobody dollar book said, deal? "Hey, this guy is writing a book about lying to the press." Yeah. Maybe we should fact check what he's saying. Yeah. Nobody said, "Let's call the publisher and right. get the size of the advance." Right. So that's the first thing. And that's then a, that is hilarious. You know? So so it starts to get picked up, and then I I send a, a, an anonymous tip to Gawker, uh, a writer named Hamilton Nolan, and I say, <laughs> "How could this person have gotten a half a million dollar book deal? It must be a celebrity." tell all about uh, his clients. Oh, and you're just basically uh, red meat <laughs> yeah. to the lion. He he sends me an email uh, and I say I can't answer this. Uh, no comment, right? And uh, manufactured buzz. Right. Uh, five minutes later, you know, is Ryan Holiday's new book a celebrity tell all? You know, boom. That story <laughs> too exists easy. to this day. Wow, has not been corrected. Amazing. And this is the same website that you know would attack me for writing this book, or that would say that you know Peter Thiel destroyed a venerable institution of journalism in his in his law. And it's like actually no, this was in many cases. A rumor mill, right? A clearinghouse for rumors and gossip and poorly fact-checked information. And and we, this revisionist history does not quite encapsulate how the system actually works. And so my point is, look, I did this as a joke for a book to prove a point. Uh -huh. But what could I do if I wanted to propagate some racist theory? It, or if you some... had a more nefarious intent. Exactly. Wow, that that is just astonishing. Who was the media editor at The Observer when you were there? Uh, well, Ken Kirsten was the editor-in-chief. That's who edited my right. columns. The one thing I didn't get to about Conspiracy earlier was uh, MBTO. That was yeah. Peter Thiel's... Acronym, yeah. For for Gawker, tell us about that. Yeah, he called, his acronym stands for Manhattan-Based Terrorist Organization. And so that's, that, that's what he believed. Really, this is not just a, hey, I'm annoyed that they did this. Yeah. He's really looking at them as a very significant um, problem yeah. for anybody who's potentially in the public eye. Yeah, and, and I think he deeply believed that, right or wrong. 
but it is the predilection of, of anyone in a feud or in a conflict, you label your opponent as evil, and it right. allows you to justify the lengths to which you're going you to go. You demonize them, and they're yes. no longer a person. Yeah. So we we have the Hulk Hogan sex tape. That wasn't the only sex tape. Didn't um, was it Fred Durst of Limp Bizkit? Am I remembering? They'd run a number of sex tapes, and really? what was so and and leaked celebrity photos. They mm-hmm. they'd done a number of things, and and what was actually so remarkable about the hacked it, actress cell phones with all the nude selfies uh-huh. on them. What was I mean so, that was that was in the press for like six months, a different one every day. What was so remarkable was that no one had actually taken Gawker to trial before, and that was Teal's insight. Right? He felt like. No, not only did most people not have the money, but most people didn't have the determination or the stamina to take it that right. far. And so there's this remarkable moment in the trial that I talk about, or pre-trial, where in the depositions, you know, the first question you're asked at a deposition is, have you ever been deposed before? And the answer from the folks at Gawker is universally no. That's amazing. They, the, all, the most controversial media outlet on the planet that had been, you never know, sued. never sued. And so they were in uncharted territory. They didn't know how dangerous the predicament they were in actually was. They did, didn't you, have the did you like writing this book? I could tell you really loved writing Daily Stoic. You could see this is a very personal book for you. Yes. This one, I get the sense that you may empathize more with some parties than others. But this felt like there was a little bit of an arm's length distance. Am I am I overstating that? No, no. I, I would say conspiracy was harder to write, uh-huh. and I enjoyed it for, as the artistic challenge that it was. Mm-hmm. I would say it's not personally fulfilling the way that writing the obstacles away and he goes the enemy and 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 the daily stoic have been for me because they've challenged uh, this book challenged me as a person, no question. But they challenged me as the person. I want to be in everyday life. They mm-hmm. challenge challenges me to be better and ask tough questions. This was this was much more challenge as a as a creative person. So, in response to to what you're saying philosophically, do you find, given your history with places like American Apparel, does that interfere with the way people perceive you? And and as a Stoic, does it matter? What matters is your response to that. Right. Well, it, I I th- look if I if I was writing my own life story for the purposes of getting credibility of total strangers, of course, my experience with controversial clients is not what I would put in there, right? And those are mistakes or not mistakes. So those are choices that I live with and have learned from. Uh Uh-huh. But I- You were very young. I mean, to be fair to you, you were 20 at American Apparel. Right. At 20, I was, you know, going to keggers in college and getting high all the time. I can't imagine having a real job at that age. Yeah, and and, and there are things I would do differently. Uh, they made me who I am, but there are things I would do differently. But I think, you know, historically, it's a strange argument, right? Because Seneca is Nero's tutor. So I think anything on the right side of that is pretty safe. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, he, he was the advisor to the worst emperor in history, Ever, right. a deranged psychopath. And he still felt that was consistent with Stoicism. So I feel like it's pretty generous. On the spectrum, yeah. you, you weren't advising the, the person who led to the fall of Rome. So, right, exactly. So you got that going with you. Um, let's get to some of my favorite okay. questions, the standard things I ask all of my guests. And this is a tough question to ask you because okay. I don't know if there's the answer to this. What's the most important thing people don't know about you? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think people tend to think I'm not a person, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm either this sort of machine that churns out books or that I've worked for these controversial clients, so I must be this horrible person. And, you know, I'm just a, a normal person who you, writes books for a living. You seem pretty reasonable. I try, I try to be. That's that. I would like to be a successful, normal person. That's my goal. <laughs> good good goal. Tell us about some of your early uh, mentors who—, who uh, who sure. affected uh, who you are and, and your philosophy? Well, you know, one of the most trying things at American Apparel watching this company collapse and implode is that Dove Charney was this great friend of mine, this person who'd seen talent and promise in me, who'd groomed me, who'd given me many opportunities. It's very alarming when someone who says, I see some of myself in you, catastrophically implodes, right? You start <laughs> right. to question things. But, you know, Robert Greene, uh, the, the writer... Uh, the 48, 48 Laws of Power, yeah. Mastery. I was his apprentice so I, on the side. As all this is going on, I'm also a research assistant to Robert Greene. That's fascinating. And and that was my sort of crash course in how to be a writer. And and he's like sort of the model for how I try to live my life. Not I don't try to live my life by the 48 Laws of Power. I try to live my life the way that the author of the 48 Laws of Power, who is this sort of disciplined, 
kind, generous person uh-huh. happens to live his his life in the profession that I'm also in. How, how did you find your way to Robert Greene? He's such a fascinating character. I was an enormous fan, and I was working for a different author who happened to know Robert, and I just wouldn't, wouldn't let it go. One thing led to another. Yeah. Huh, that's interesting. So who else influenced your approach to media? To media? Well, uh, one of the books I would suggest everyone read who who's looking to sort of understand media is a book by Upton Sinclair called The Brass Check. It's uh-huh. actually the name of my marketing company as well. But he writes this book after the jungle. Right. He writes an expose of journalism in the in the early twentieth century. And it's just as disgusting as the meatpacking industry. Really? And it's you could replace you could take the exact same book, replace newspaper with blog, and it would be equally true today. So funny you say that. There's this book from the early twenties, nineteen twenty something. I'm trying to remember the name of the author. How I trade stocks. And you could replace yeah. any of the dot coms with any of the yeah. telegraph companies, and everything is exactly the same. It's it's amazing. You said that same exact thing. Well, that's what the Stoics say: is that history is just this constant repetition of the same people doing the same. Human things. nature is unchanging. It's, mm-hmm. it's no surprise. So you mentioned um, that book. Tell us about some of your favorite books. That's a that. Uh, it, it's always hard to give general book recommendations. But by the way, but, this is the one question I get more emails about. What was the book that he recommended? More than any single thing, people want good recommendations. So yeah. it doesn't have to be general, okay. or it could be general or specific. It's what books do you think are important to you, okay. and if people enjoy it or not, yeah, sure, that's sure. on them. So I'll, I'll give you a couple. So one, I would say everyone should read Robert Greene, 48 Laws of Power and Mastery, incredibly mm-hmm. important books. I'm a big Rich Cohen fan. Uh, he wrote Tough Jews. He wrote uh, The Fish That Ate the Whale about Samuel Zamuri, the founder of United Fruit, uh-huh. one of my favorite books of all time. The Fish That Ate the Whale. Yeah. It's a, it's an incredible story of, of, of financial operations and entrepreneurism uh, and, and you know, government and corruption. Rich Cohen. Rich Cohen. So I'm a huge fan of, of Rich Cohen. Um, uh, I'm a big William Tecumseh Sherman fan. He's one of my favorite. Uh, I, I love Sherman and Grant. Uh-huh. Uh, so I both of their memoirs, I would strongly urge people. Have to you read, read the Chernow uh, book? I've read so many biographies of Grant that I feel guilty about reading another <laughs> thousand page. Right. Uh, but I love Chernow. His book on Rockefeller is fantastic. Sure. Titan, I think. Uh, yep. His book on uh, Andrew Hamilton is is as good as you would expect. Right. Uh, his book on Washington is fantastic. I'm a big biography fan. I think mm-hmm. biography is how we learn. And then I would say Plutarch's Lives. Uh, there's a reason that almost every great historical figure is either in that book or obsessed with that book. Uh-huh. Um, and then, of course, the Stoics. If you, The most powerful man in the world, Marcus Aurelius, uh-huh. sat down every night and wrote in a journal notes to himself about how to be a better person, and that survives to us. You would Meditations. Be an, yeah, you would be an idiot not to read that book. I mean, it's just an, an incredible <laughs> it's historical It's literally 2,000 years old, and it just persists ongoing. Exactly. That that is for someone said. I don't know if I have any books. That's a nice list of books. What excites you right now? What are you looking out at and saying that's really interesting? I mean, I, I do think cryptocurrencies are interesting. Uh, the, I think someone will solve. Someone will find a practical use for blockchain, uh, and and I think it's a race to find. Uh, there is the speculative bubble of crypt- cryptocurrencies. Two separate things: the technology and the trading vehicle. And, and someone will solve it, and I think that will be really interesting. So I'm, I'm interested in that. You know, I live in Austin. I, I live on a small farm. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I was just reading this article. Elon Musk's brother was saying he thinks millennials will move to farms. He thinks that they will flee the city, not to the suburbs, but to keep going the land. Right. Yeah, and uh, that ma- that that lines up with my experience, and and I'm I'm bullish on that. Although too. cities continue to attract young people in ever greater numbers, especially now that jobs have become fairly plentiful. Yes, but I, I think like if my own career is somewhat ahead of the curve because I started early and and got lucky in many ways, it's that you go to the city, you make your money, you build a business, a reputation, mm-hmm. and then you can work from wherever you want. And then you go, right. why am I living in New York City? Right. And so I think that, that I think it will be interesting to see how millennials change. Are millennials going to move into the suburbs, back into the suburbs they grew up in, or are they going to pioneer their own thing? Right. Uh, the answer to the question is the food is why you live here. You can't get good Chinese food on a farm. Or but if that's not, all, a, but yes. If that's, right. if that's or Vietnamese food or, sure. or go down the list, pick your favorite cuisine. Um, but 
at a certain point, it's hard living in a city versus having little elbow space and, and a big sky. That's a very different lifestyle Agreed. That, that I think suits you once you work through your 20s and 30s, yes. hypo- hypothetically. Yep. Um, so we've been talking a lot about the media. What do you think the next set of changes are that's going to wash over the media landscape? I think we're going to see more and more subscription-based content, especially as millennials get older and their time is worth more money. Right. Uh, the idea, like, the reason people pay for Bloomberg terminals mm-hmm. is because those the time and the information is extremely valuable to those people, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, millennials originally pirated music. We were never downloading anything. Sure. And now we pay monthly for Spotify, right? Right. Because our time gets more valuable. Or, or Amazon Prime or Apple iTunes will go down the list. You yes. have, uh, it's a, there's a wealth of, of everything. I'm not, I don't know if you've discovered this, but I grew up in an era where you would actually get videotapes or DVDs. Yeah. That's done. Uh-huh. Everything we watch on video is either uh, Amazon Prime, Netflix, Hulu, go down sure. the list. Nobody is buying this sort of physical stuff anymore. Yes, but I, I, I do think you're going to see in the information space people realizing that free information is very expensive. Right. Free information. It's, so wrong. it's worth what it costs you, essentially. Exactly. So the Washington Post behind a paywall, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal has always been behind a paywall. And they have a... I was just reading about their technology. This sort of flex it, paywall. It, yeah. How much should we charge you? How likely are you to pay? And I think that technology is only going to get better. Like they do with selling airline seats, yeah. in other words. Yeah. That, that, that's, quite, that's quite interesting. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Uh, that that's always the tough question. I feel like I've been lucky in a lot of ways. Uh, my my failures have been slips rather than falls mm-hmm. for the most part. And so, in some ways, you know, the stoic exercise is to think constantly about the next, like to to be prepared for some big setback, some big correction. So I, I do think about that a lot. But uh, you know, when I was building my marketing company, I'm I'm. I, I was it, it was going well, and then I decided I really wanted to scale it and build it in a, in a big way. And I, you know, I took on some partners and some investments and, and investor money, and hired a bunch of people. And and I, and I remember my wife saying like, "Why are, you have the perfect thing? Why are you doing this?" Right. And I didn't listen to her, which is always a mistake. And it went horribly wrong. It sort of blew up my relationships with a bunch of people. I ended up being miserable. Uh, it was uh, it was working way more and making probably less money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was it was a good failure for me in that sometimes you've got to figure out what you don't want to clarify what it is that you actually do want. Right. That, that, makes, a, that makes perfect sense. Um, tell us what you do for fun. Uh, you write a, an awful lot. What do you do to just relax? I, I would say when I'm not writing, that's when I'm having the least amount of fun. Like I don't have a book that I'm in the middle of right now, and it's weird, right? I'm like, right. how do I fill all this time? Like it's that's that's where I dedicate a lot of my energy. Uh, but you know, I, I I I'm a big I run and swim every day. Those are my like two. That's my two favorite parts of the day, or if I'm doing both, that, that's my favorite thing to do. New, and the new iPod has a waterproof. Uh, feature you can actually listen to music in the pool i reject that entirely <laughs> i think the pool is the i say the pool is the last quiet place on earth that's a fair statement no screens no noise it's i love swimming precisely because it's one hour of nothing you're in the pool for a solid hour i try i try 45 minutes to an hour yeah that, i try to do a, a mile that's a mile good workout wow yeah. i'm impressed if a millennial or a budding writer were to come to you and ask for a career advice what would you tell them well, I'd give the writer the advice that that I got, which is that you have to go do interesting things, mm-hmm. right? Don't go learn how to write well. Go learn things about the world that you can then communicate in the writing. So when you were asking me about some of my controversial choices career-wise or things I've you know got myself in trouble with or whatever, on the one hand, you know those might not be great for my brand, but uh-huh. they've also been the few. I wouldn't have written my first book it's if I fuel. hadn't done that. Yeah, and and it, it's given me a perspective and an angle and a. So, uh, you know, material. And so a writer needs material more than they need. A- anyone can write. Like, you know, I'd read Keith Richards' biography if it was written in crayon, you know, right. and was filled with misspellings because he's lived an incredible life, right? And so a writer has to go have experiences that fuel their writing. Huh. That, that's quite fascinating. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of media and literature today that you wish you knew 10, 15 years ago when you were first getting started? 
the incentives make it almost impossible for it to have the traits that we want to have, right? We, we want media to be empathetic and truthful and reasoned and balanced and fair and all the, all the things you would exp- and you're like, I'm describing what I would want to see in the ideal media outlet are essentially economically impossible, right? They're an economically impossible. And then worse, there's a culture on top of it mm-hmm. that, that, that exacerbates it uh, rather than corrects or mitigates it. Are and you referring to digital, print, electronic, all of the above? I, I would say all of the above. Like I'm biased, but I think uh, books are one of the few safer mediums, right? Because you pay for books. They take right. a long time to make. They're designed to last for a long time. So the only mediums I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of right now are books and podcasts. Quite quite fascinating. We have been speaking to Ryan Holiday, author of the book, Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue, uh, as well as several other uh, books, including The Daily Stoic. Uh, If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch, and you could see any of the other, let's call it 187 such prior conversations that we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff for helping to put uh, together this podcast each week. Medina Parwana is our producer slash audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.